Messiah Saints, welcome to another edition of Talking Bible Truth with Dr. Kamala D. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D, here to help you grow in faith and walk in God's amazing grace. Now, today's message is entitled, How Can Christians Move Away from Suffering? I chose this message to help you dismiss that old myth about Christians should suffer for Christ. So sit back and learn how to walk in the abundant life that Christ died for you to have. All right, saints, let's delve into this very important message. Now, believe it or not, God gave me this message late last night at about 1130, between 1130 and midnight. Yes, I had no clue before then what I was going to teach. As a matter of fact, because I had not received a word from God, what he wanted me to share today, I wasn't going to share anything. I was going to wait possibly until Wednesday or next Sunday. But then the word of the Lord came to me last night. I want you to talk about how my people can get away from suffering. Yes, it came to me late last night. So I don't have many notes. I am um, going to follow the Holy Spirit on this one. I do have some notes, but um, not as many notes as I typically have. So I want to talk about pain, suffering, sickness, poverty, or financial needs uh, and how they are constant companions for many Christians. For years, the assumption uh, you know, has been that Christians were meant to endure such tribulations. Although the reason for doing so were never quite clear. Most importantly, what was missing from any discussion about Christians facing these hardships was what I consider the most critical question of all. What does the Bible say about Christians having to suffer? Now, the purpose of this message is to examine these what I call myths or ideas of suffering in light of scripture. Then to follow up with an analysis of the actual Greek words used for the words suffer or suffering. I think an honest evaluation of, of what the Bible actually says on the subject will surprise you. It surprised me. Hmm. Now, most likely every Christian knows some faithful believer, possibly even a family member or personal friend who has suffered for years with a sickness or life-threatening disease. The question almost is always asked, if God is so good, why do people suffer? Or more baffling, it seems, if God is so good, why do Christians suffer? In this message, I want to answer that question. It is an important question, I believe. Hopefully you do too. Because there are many Bible teachers and popular ministers who routinely claim that Christians should suffer. Yes, that is true, that it, it, it has a heavenly purpose. Now, I will address two questions in this message. What does, Christian, what does the Christian church as a whole teach about the purpose of suffering in the life of a Christian? Uh, what does the Bible have to say about these teachings concerning suffering? Now, as I examine the first question, what does the Christian church teach about the purpose of suffering in, in life of a Christian. What about we, how about we start there in the life of a Christian? Now 
I want to develop for you uh, a couple of, of things, what I call ideas or myths of suffering. These concepts of suffering are different explanations. You know, many, you know, quite familiar to you of why Christians suffer and God's purpose in their suffering. We all need to know if indeed it is God's purpose for Christians to suffer. After all, we want to be obedient, right? And, and if this is his intention for our lives, and if we benefit in some mysterious way from it, we should know that, right? But by the same token, if these ideas of suffering are not based on the Bible, or if they you know, misrepresent what scripture actually says about suffering, we need to know that as well. If anyone is suffering and that suffering is not required or intended by God, then we want to reject it and do what we can to end it, not perpetuate it or endorse it. Okay. Let me say right now for the record that no ministers who teach these ideas will be identified by me today. No, that's not my intentions. Okay. I am only examining the concepts, the ideas, and the myths, and what the Bible says about them, and then you be the judge, okay? So let us jump right in with the idea of suffering. Again, I want to be clear that this is what some ministers, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and denominations teach. Not all of them, some of them. Now, one of them is nothing can touch the child of God without God's permission. So we accept each hurt, each problem, each difficulty as from his hand, seeking to learn from it all that he would teach us using all the resources of God at our disposal and asking him to turn it out for our good and his glory. Now, as you hear this, <laughs> It's true. As you hear this statement, it may seem reasonable. There are mixtures of, of truth and error here because it is accurate to say that nothing happens without God's permission. And we don't have to limit that to Christians. It applies to the whole world. God must either allow or decree that everything that happens will happen. If that, you know, were not the case, it would mean that there is a power out there bigger than God. But let's analyze this idea, this myth, or this concept a little deeper. What does the Bible say? Jesus speaking in John 10, 10 said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they, talking about believers in Jesus, may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And I'm sure you have heard this scripture before. I talk about it all the time. The very fact that Jesus said the thief and contrasted the thief with himself reveals there's a difference between what the thief does and what Jesus' purpose is. Jesus negates all that the thief does and lets us know that what the thief does is not the decreed will of God for his children. What does a thief do? 
He steals. Anything that steals from you is not the work of God, but rather the work of the thief. In other words, anything that steals your joy, your home, your job, your relationships, your health, your money didn't come from God, but from the thief. And we need to make that clear before we can move forward. But that's not all. Jesus said that the thief's purpose is also to kill. So whatever kills, what is yours is not from God. And I said that slowly so you can get this. Whatever kills, what is yours is not from God. Yet Christians routinely say, well, the Lord took him. That is not what Jesus said. Because if God killed what is yours, that will make God the thief. Whatever kills is not from God. However, people immediately ask, if it's not from God, why does God allow it? And that's reasonable. That's a legitimate question, which suggests that if something is not the will of God, then he would automatically stop it. Uh-uh. The problem is that God gave humans free will. You guys need to get this free will concept, man. If Once y'all get that, y'all will be set free. He must permit things to happen because we do. If he interfered with our decisions in what we'll call daily life decisions, as, as opposed to ordained world events like the release of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity or the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, then we would not truly have free will. But you choose whether to wear a red or green suit to work. You choose whether to drive a Lexus, a Mercedes-Benz, or a Chevrolet to work. And you choose whether to drink alcohol or drink a soda or drink water or smoke cigarettes or dope. God has given you free will to make those choices. You just need to understand that there are consequences that come that comes with those choices, okay? This raises a, a, a related issue. You frequently hear testimonies in which a man will say, for example, I spent 17 years in prison and it was while I was in prison that I got saved. Now, it is a wonderful thing that the man did get saved in prison, but that ignores the fact that he did not need to go to prison to be saved or, or, or to get saved. In fact, God's will was that he would have gotten saved before going to prison so that he would not have committed the crime that landed him there in the first place. Another similar example or testimony you, you often hear is, I was in the hospital and the doctor said I had six hours to live and it was at that moment I, I got saved. You know, well, thank God, you know, you did get saved, but God did not want you deadly ill as a means to save you. Rather, he used the time where you could not, you know, be distracted uh, with other activities to get your attention. Do you see the difference? You know, God can use any circumstance. He is God. But that doesn't mean that he has decreed every circumstance. You are human and humans have free will. For him to overrule your free will will be for him to, to break his word. And it will make people 
you know, a little more than robots. And I always talk about this. Y'all know I always say God didn't make us or create us to be robots. Mm -mm. We are not puppets. We are doing things on our own free will. God is not guiding your steps. He may direct, but you have to follow. You know, just consider this. If it is God's will to save everyone, why doesn't he just save everyone? Call it a day and, and then just send Jesus back right now. Why? Why doesn't he do that? Because if he saved people over their own free will, they would not legally have free will. Do y'all get that? If God just saved people, it, I'm trying to get y'all to get this, people. If he just wanted to save people, he can do it. But it, they wouldn't be legally saved. You know, because we have free will to choose. Now, for you to have a choice, you must have the right to choose wrongly. More importantly, God has limited himself to allow you to make that wrong choice. He is limited in all this. Let's return to John 10, 10. When Jesus spoke of the thief, it is clear that he referred to the devil. Okay. You know, the thief is one of the names of the devil and Lucifer is another one and Satan is another one. The Bible instructs us exactly on what to do with the devil in Ephesians 4:27, when Paul told us, nor give place to the devil. The King James Version says, neither give place to the devil. Now, it's up to us to do something about the devil because he has already been defeated through Jesus. But we have to accept that victory and claim it as our own. It's like a package at the post office. If the post office sends you a card alerting you to the fact that there is a package waiting for you there, it is not the post office fault if you don't pick up that package. The people at the post office have done their job. Jesus has done his. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Matthew 8, 17, that we would have victory over sickness and disease. Moreover, Jesus did something about the thief defeating the devil on our behalf. Okay. Jesus said in Mark 16, 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. He didn't say the signs would follow him. He said the signs would follow those who believe. This is our power of attorney, as it were. Some Christians don't understand that the name of Jesus is more than a name. It is a Christian's legal right to conduct business on behalf of the father in this earth. That name is the right and authority to do something about the thief. Okay. In Mark 6, 17, again, Jesus said, and these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. There you go. There you have it. He didn't say he would cast out demons for you, but that you have the authority in his name to do it. This is so wonderful and it's so important because we don't even have to fight the demons. Just cast them out in the name of Jesus. Again, according to Paul, we are not to even give place to the devil. Please understand this. Paul was telling us that the devil has no place in our lives unless we give it to him. Okay, now to return to the, the earlier question of why God allowed uh, something to happen to someone, the answer is we let it happen to us. 
God must permit it because we permit it. He is bound by his word, which the Bible says he has magnified even above his name in Psalms 138 too. Unfortunately, as God told the prophet Hosea in um, chapter four, verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I say that all the time. That's why Christians are being destroyed all around this world because they don't have the knowledge of God to protect them, to grow in. They don't know what God's will is for them. They don't. So they are allowing some misguided ministers in the body of Christ to tell them things um, about suffering that, that God never even ordained for them. He didn't. He never even ordained for them. Now, you frequently hear people who are in pain or suffering say, God is teaching me something. Oh, my God, that just that just tears at my heart when I hear that. No, the devil is working on killing you. That's what that is. God is not teaching you anything when you are sick and almost uh, and the doctor gives you a report saying you have uh, maybe six weeks or, or six months to live. No, that's the devil trying to kill you. You know, God does not teach you through pain and suffering. And Christians, you need to understand that we got to move away from this. And part of moving away from it is knowing what God's will is for you. God teaches you through his word. Yeah, there is a big difference between you learning something from pain and suffering or financial hardship and God teaching you through those adverse circumstances. Why do we tell our children not to put their hands on a hot stove? Huh? Why do we tell them that? Or not to poke their fingers in an electrical outlet? Why do we tell them that? They certainly would learn by burning their hands. But we do not want to teach them that way, or do you? In fact, if they do not burn their hands on a hot stove, it is precisely because the child has not learned from our instruction or words of warning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If that child puts his hand on a hot stove and burn his hand off and got second or third degree burns, it's because they either didn't follow the instructions or you didn't teach them. The child did learn from the experience, however, but it was not our will that he or she learn in that manner. And you know it, you will never teach your child how not to touch a hot stove by putting his hand on it and then causing third degree burns to where child protection comes in and you eventually be arrested. Uh-uh, mm-mm. Can you see the difference? Often we go through an experience because we are, are too hard-headed to learn from the word of God, or we just don't know. What would be worse is if you did not learn from the experience. That would be worse. It would be terrible to go through a car accident that occurred because you had been drinking and then had to spend time in jail or the hospital and not learn anything from that experience. Experience is not, contrary to what many say, the best teacher. It's not. The word of God is the best teacher. And if you follow the word, you would have to go through an adverse. You wouldn't, I'm sorry. You wouldn't have to go through an adverse experience to learn. What does the word tell us? In James 4, 7, it says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I want you to note that God does not tell us to fight the devil because the devil has already been defeated, but instead he tells us to submit and resist you submit to God 
and resist the devil. Many people conveniently forget the submit part and then try to resist on their own and that will not work. It just simply won't work. Let's look at uh, another aspect of, of this notion that God uses the, con the idea or the concepts of hurt and uh, each difficulty to turn, turn them into good. Mm -mm. Let's look at that. I have a question for you. Is stealing and killing good or bad? Hmm? I'll wait. Is stealing and killing good or bad? Do you think that destroying is a bad thing? If killing, stealing, and destroying are bad, then what is the opposite of that? Good is the opposite of that. This is simple, but profound. God is the opposite of bad. By simple logic, if the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and that's bad, then the abundant life must be good. In fact, it is good. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father. It comes from God. And since stealing and killing and destroying are bad, they can't possibly come from God. Not God the Father I know. Not the God and Father that Jesus said came to give you abundant life. Now, if you read the newspapers or watch television, you see all sorts of examples of terrible things happening. Like most recent, the, the mass shootings and these active shooter situations. There are famines in Africa and Asia diseases all of all sorts. And you might think, well, Dr. Kamladi, how can you justify what you said based on what is happening around the world? Now, you must understand that many of these regions had been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it centuries ago. You know the old saying, oh, that's a God-forsaken country. Well, that's not just a saying. <laughs> that's a fact. You know, there's a price that must be paid for rejecting Christ. And it, the, the, look, it's not being paid by God. That gives the devil a foothold to come in and wreak havoc. And you see what's going on in these other countries outside of the U.S. The U.S. is not that holy either. Uh, trust me. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Now, if you operate outside the system that God has established, you have given place to the devil. You have opened a door and he can walk right in and take a seat. Now, uh, the amount of food production has increased in the 20th century, both in total terms and per person. It has even increased on every continent, although faster on some continents than others. Yet there have been famines. Uh -huh. Why? Why are people starving all over this world? Some of the worst famines of the 20th century have just been because one group of people was trying to deliberately starve another group of people. Oh yeah, we got evil all over. That was the case in Russia back in 1920 and 1930. Uh, in India in, in 1970. And in Nigeria in, in the late 1970s. And, and most recently in Ethiopia and Somalia. Uh, and, and that started back in the 1990s. You have to go all the way back to 1907 to find to, to actually find 
a famine that was caused by nature. You know, a drought, for example. Um, most of the time, it is, it is one group of people oppressing another and using food to do so. Excuse me. Because what if you don't eat for months, if you don't have water to drink for months, what happens? You die. You die. And that's how uh, Satan is taking some of these people out in these other countries, in these foreign countries, uh, before they can actually find out that their hope lies in Jesus and he can deliver them from that. You see, Satan's uh, main purpose is to get you away from Jesus. Because, see, that's the Savior. He getting you out of here. He trying to take you out of here before you find Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to see... Uh, no, I, I don't think I'm going to talk about that. Now, when you think of India, uh, you think of starvation, right? Well, we were, um, I think, I, look, I found some information out about India. Um, the majority of goods produced are not for the Indian people. The majority of food that is produced in India is not for the Indian people. You know, they are exported. Now, now that could be that someone was greedy and simply uh, getting rich on the bodies of their brothers and sisters. Or it could be that the government had programs that made it virtually impossible to sell goods inside the country so that the politicians could get rich. But you see the point? There was plenty of food and there is plenty of food in India. Now, remember, every good gift comes from God. Famine is not a good gift and neither is sickness, disease, poverty, or being in prison. Those are not good gifts and they are not training tools. Those are a result of your actions. That's what they are. Those come from the other guy, the thief. To sum up the first idea of suffering, it is suggested that God uses difficulties to teach us when in fact the difficulties do not come from God in the first place. They come from the devil and God told us to deal with the devil by casting him out and resisting him, not giving the devil a place or a foothold. Now, let us move on to a, another idea of suffering. The Bible and the history of the church both demonstrate that God's way for the suffering of the people has not always been the way of escape, but the way of endurance. My Lord. My Lord. Now, I wrote down some of these because I heard them. I heard them taught in a church with people sitting out there listening and receiving them rather than searching the Bible and the scriptures to see that if what is being told to them is true. I heard this. In other words, it is the Christian's lot in life to endure, not escape. <laughs> you, did you hear what I just said? To endure troubles, not escape it. Now, is that true? What does the Bible say? Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, and that means trial or test, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, tried or tested, beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Some People who misunderstand this scripture say, 
Well, you know, God will never put more on you that you can bear. But where does the scripture say that? What, this scripture doesn't say doesn't say that. I want to read it again because we have people actually twit well the devil uh, sitting next to them, teaching them or standing in front of them, teaching them, telling them that God will never put more on you than you can bear. Where's he getting that scripture from? Because it's, it's not coming from first Corinthians 10, 13. Let me read that again. No temptation, which is trial or test has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation or trial or test will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Notice that the verse did not say common to Christians, but common to man. It, it isn't only Christians who get, get cancer or sicknesses. Sinners do too. It isn't only Christians who are on welfare or, or that are suffering in poverty. Sinners are also. It isn't only some Christians who operate in fear. Sinners do too. Satan is a sadist. He does not like humans because God created man in his image. But the devil's children are already under his domain, his authority. So Bible-believing, tongue-talking Christians really draw Satan's anger because they are not under his control. The term no temptation means that there is not one person alive today who is going through anything new and for whom God has not already provided a means for you or them to escape. Some misguided Christians think they need to die for Jesus. Mm-hmm. God needs you alive, sisters and brothers. The work is done here. There is nothing you can do for God dead. In fact, aside from Jesus' uh, redemptive and sacrificial death, which is something we cannot possibly repeat, we do not have one direct or specific scripture in the Bible of a person getting saved as the result of death, execution, or martyrdom. It's not. It's not. We assume people were inspired by these martyrs, of course, but isn't it interesting that God, in all his wisdom, did not provide us one example of a martyr who died and whose death was followed by people immediately declaring Jesus as their Lord. In fact, after James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword in Acts 12 too, the Bible said that Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews. That's in Acts 12, 3. The term the Jews refers to the Jewish leaders who refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Do you suppose the Jews would have been pleased if James' death had brought hundreds of converts? Hmm? Do you suppose that? I know not. And apparently his death did not. But notice this. Almost without exception, when someone was healed or raised from the dead, all sorts of people gave, they actually got saved. They gave their lives to Christ. In Acts 3, 8, 9, after Peter healed the lame man, verse 8 says, leaping, that the man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. And verse 9 says, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now, this doesn't say directly, but the conclusion is that this man, by entering the temple with them, meaning the Christians, 
and praising God was praising God with them also. The implication is that he got saved. And notice that the people saw him walking and praising God. People saw this man healed as a result of these Christians. Okay. Now, if you skip down to Acts chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, you see that Peter and John then preached Christ and him crucified to these same people who saw and, and 5,000 heard the word and believed, according to, to, to verse 4. Now, if you continue reading in Acts uh, chapter 5, 12, 16, you see this, verse 12. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were, were done among the people. Verse 13, yet not, not, oh wait, I'm sorry, verse 13. Yet none of the rest of them dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And verse 15, so that they, believers, brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Because people were healed even at the... Uh, uh, the anointing flowing off the apostles like it should be today. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm trying to contain myself. The Lord told me to tone it down a little bit. So I'm toning it down. Verse 16. And we're still in Acts chapter 5. We at verse 16. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Now, this tells us that signs and wonders were done among the people. The implication being that the apostles were healing people. Because as a result of their experience, these same believers brought the sick out into the streets to be healed. More importantly to, to our uh, subject, it appears that because of the signs and wonders and apparently healings, Multitudes of men and women became Christians. You know, that's quite a contrast. Now, when James was killed for Christ, the enemies of the gospel were pleased. But when people were healed by the power of Christ, multitudes got saved. Y'all see the difference? We find in Acts 6, on two occasions, the Bible tells us that the number of disciples were multiplying. And... Uh, in, in, in verse 7, that the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now just consider this. If God's intention was that people die for him, what would have been happening to the numbers? They wouldn't have been multiplying, I can tell you that, but they would have been diminishing as more and more Christians got killed. Now our model, however, as great as James and John and Peter were, is Jesus. That's who our motto is. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, how did he conduct his ministry? Jesus, how did Jesus conduct his ministry? In Matthew 4, 23, we find that he went about all Galilee, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. What happened as a result? Great multitudes followed him. That's what happened. Great multitudes followed him. Now, it is true that Jesus mixed preaching and healing in his ministry. No question about that. But if it was God's will for people to suffer and be sick, 
Don't you suppose that he would have gone about inflicting suffering on all the Gentiles? Imparting to, uh, to them all kinds of diseases? Now, on the contrary, Jesus went about healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. Jesus often said that he, he always did the will of the Father. Therefore, we must believe that sickness and disease are not part of God's will. Because Jesus was healing that. Him and God wasn't fighting against each other. But the Bible says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So, and that's in Matthew 18, 6, 16, 18, 16. Now, so let's see if Jesus did this any, any other time. Again, in Matthew 9, verse 1 through 8, we find that Jesus forgives and heals a paralytic who, who, is, uh, who, who was, after being healed, arose and departed to his house. That's in verse 7. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. That's in verse 8. Now, are you seeing a pattern here? Do you see the pattern? F follow the scriptures now. Almost every time someone was healed, that person gave glory to God. And when other people saw it, they glorified God as well. Often by becoming Christians. Almost without exception, when people heard of his healing, multitudes came out. Oh, people wanted to be healed. I don't think people want to be healed today. They are seeking sympathy. And sympathy comes through sickness. So the, the devil has put that spirit on them, a spirit of sickness so that you can seek sympathy. But you see, that draws your focus away from God and Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I'm sorry to say that, but the Lord just told me to say that because I told you right now the uh, Holy Spirit speaking through me. I don't have many notes. And, and I want to say this again, almost without exception, when people heard of his healing, multitudes came out. Matthew tells us that when Jesus healed, and that's in um, Matthew 15, 30, great multitudes, they marveled and glorified the God of Israel. Even more specifically, Matthew recounts the story of two blind men who received their sight. And after they were healed, they followed him. They followed Jesus. Oh, yes. Why would you not want to follow the one who healed you and who and who can heal you today? Now, we can go on and on all through the Gospels, but the story is the same. When there was healing, casting out demons and people raised from the dead, scores of people followed Jesus or after the resurrection became Christians. That's on one side of the ledger. On the other side, the impact of martyrs, we do not have uh, any recordings uh, in the Bible. Uh, of one instance of people glorifying God or following Jesus or becoming a Christian after someone was killed for the word of God. Mm -mm. Not run, one recorded in, 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 in this Bible that people followed after they were killed. Now, there were some exceptions when Jesus instructed the people who were healed, such as the leper in Matthew 8 and 1 and 4, not to say anything as he did uh, the two blind men in Matthew 9, 27 and 28. Even when he healed multitudes, Matthew 12, 16, he warned them not to make him known, not to make Jesus known. There was a reason for that. According to Matthew, in order that he, um, that the, the prophecies of, of Isaiah would be fulfilled. Now, I'll say it again. There is nothing you can do for God dead. Because the work is done here while you are alive. 
And I bless God. Thank God for that. Thank God for his grace. Now, I, you, you know, I'll go to heaven and I'll be with the Lord. But, but you will be dead because the work is not done in heaven. The work is done here. That is exactly right that you will go to heaven. But how many sinners are you going to lead to Christ while standing around the throne of God? Zero. How many sick bodies will you lay hands on for them to be healed in heaven? Zero. Because there are no sick people in heaven. How many people will you help get filled with the Holy Spirit? None. God needs you alive and well on planet Earth. Excuse me. Thank God, people. You know, thank God that that um, Paul, that that God made a way for Paul to be let down the wall in a basket uh, to save to save him while he was in prison. You know, from people who were intending to kill him or we will not have much of the New Testament today because Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong here. Please don't. I'm not talking about what's in the heart, the desire and willingness of people to die for God because they love him that much. We have some people that love God that much. Oh, yes, and I'm one of them. Now, no one is questioning their sincerity or their devotion or their conviction. But God does not want you to die for him. And that's something I perfectly understand. You know, he sent his son to give his life for us. Jesus himself said in John 10, 10, he came that you might have life, not death, and have it more abundantly. You know, not less abundantly, you know, full of sickness and hardship. I am certainly not casting aspersions on Christian martyrs. I'm not. God has a reward for, for them called the martyr's crown. And I don't know what's involved in that, but you can rest assured that no one sacrifices their life for the gospel's sake anywhere, anytime that God will not reward him. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No one. If you die in combat, doing something courageous, the military gives you a medal. If, um, if your act was exceptionally brave, you might receive the medal of honor after you die. Now, which do you think the United States Armed Forces would rather have? 5,000 graves or, or, uh, of medal recipients or 5,000 soldiers in the field? Pretty obvious, the latter, because... <laughs> We go to such extraordinary lengths not to lose a single soldier. Uh, they have protective armor, helmets, the best training we can provide them with, chemical suits, radar, and, and other advances, uh, advanced warning, warnings of, of the enemy. Yeah, we go through great lengths to protect our soldiers. Now, if you ask our top generals and admirals, they would all tell you that if there is such a thing as a perfect war from their perspective, it is one in which not one single serviceman or servicewoman is killed or wounded in action. God has his medals and his crowns for those who sacrifice for him. However, I think we, he would rather, you know, and I'm talking about God, I think God would rather not have to hand out those medals and instead keep his soldiers on the battlefield as long as possible 
to complete their divine assignment. Again, let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as, such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape. Make the way of escape here. Now think about this. If God was the one bringing the temptation, trial or test, if he was the one bringing the suffering because he has a purpose in it, then why would he make the way of escape? Think about, say that to yourself. Why would he make a way for you to escape? How could God be working against himself? On the one hand, he wants to tempt you, right? But on the other hand, he makes a way for you to escape the temptation he set up for you. Now, you can easily see that this is not from God. It's not people. He makes the way of escape precisely so that you can escape. And so that you won't be the devil's victim. Okay. A natural reaction is why don't all people get out of the situation that confront them? Why do some people die? Why are some shot or burned to death for the gospel? If you are in a burning building and you don't know where the fire escape is, you may well die. Likewise, if you walk right into the oppressor's camp and turn yourself in and let them execute you, then that is your choice. And really, and I say that with love, that is your choice. You cannot blame God for that. Okay? You can't. But notice here that Paul on one occasion escaped injury by being let down the wall in a basket. On another occasion, God warned him in two separate prophetic words not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul's response was that he had to go to Jerusalem and Rome. That was Paul's choice, not God's. Because I can tell you there are some places Jesus told the disciples not to go to because Jesus knew what was going to happen to them there. He didn't want to lead them to their deaths, to their early deaths. They went anyway. Some of them went anyway. That's how some of the apostles died. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And some of the, uh, the disciples, Jesus specifically told them not to go certain places. Now, and you will not find uh, in one scripture that, that God told Paul that he should go to Jerusalem and then Rome where he should die. Not one. Oh, no, God never told him that. God did his best to protect Paul by warning him. Now, let me say again, I'm not in any way criticizing those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for the Lord. I'm not criticizing them. God bless them. Oh, God bless them. I love them. God loves them. And they with Jesus. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Oh, yes, they are with Jesus. Now, I think they made a mistake, a sincere mistake, you know, made out of nothing but love for God. But an ignorant mistake in that they misread the scripture. That's what happened. Others, however, read these references to suffering and feel a need to suffer out of the sense of worthiness. You know, just suffer out of a sense of worthiness. You know, that they have not uh, quite done enough to warrant the love of God. None of us can earn the love of God or suffer enough to pay for our salvation. In some cases, people have been misled into thinking that they are so worthy um, that, 
I'm sorry, that they are so unworthy that physical suffering can atone for that. Now, such thinking is, is so off track and it plays into the old concept that you can work your way to salvation. And we all know that salvation is free. We can't work our way into salvation, sisters and brothers. Oh no, we cannot work our way into salvation. Now, to continue to look at uh, the concept that God's uh, way has not always been the way of escape, but the way of endurance. In fact, God said he would make a way of escape. So if someone is telling you that um, we need to endure and bypass the way of escape, that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. You know, God could not possibly bring on the temptations to teach you something and at the same time make a way of escape from, I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. How can God teach you something and at the same time, and I'm talking about teaching you something while in a trial and at the same time make a way of escape from, from that which he was trying to teach you? Can, can you understand what, what I'm talking about here? If he did, he would be working against himself. And that brings me to my sisters and brothers. You got to watch what people are telling you. You do. You have to watch what people are telling you. And um, let's look at another idea of suffering. You know, sometimes, you know, God allows us to suffer so that we may grow spiritually. Uh, man, that is a myth. And we are going to stop right here and continue this very important message during our next episode of How Can Christians Move Away from Suffering? hope you were blessed by this message. Now, because of the additional information that I want to share with you, I will add a second and possibly third episode to this message. If you would like to show your financial support, please sow your seed into this good ground. We teach the truth and that's good ground saints. Go to my anchor, Spotify, or break a homepage, click on the support this podcast button and contribute an amount of your choice. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or past episodes, please send your questions or comments to trustgod55.cd at gmail.com. Now until next time, saints, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. I am your host, Dr. Kamala D. Rightly dividing the word of truth in peace and love. See you next time.